to all of our wonderful podcast listeners. You are listening to Tour Guide Tell All. It feels like it's been a bit of a hot minute. We've been on a little bit of a reduced summer schedule as everyone's been traveling, and we have been so grateful to be out leading tours with real people. It's been amazing. Um, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're the The Rebecca's. And it's awesome. I am just thrilled when I get to lead tours in person and and meet real guests. But what's been really cool is we've had guests on our tours who heard our podcast or came from the podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast right now and it inspired you to check us out or book a tour, and not just in D.C. or in any of our cities, that's awesome. And thank you guys so much. And we just really love you. Um, I also want to shout out, we got about the nicest email ever from a teacher that I just, my heart like exploded. So I just want to say thank you to Wendy for just telling us how much she loved the pod. We are obviously really gung-ho about teachers because we work with them so much as tour guides. So thank you, Wendy, for sending us such a nice email. I feel like we are soul sisters. So thank you. Um, That was just really, really great. So you guys, our listeners, have just really made this summer awesome between the emails and the booking of the tours and the listening of episodes. So we're sorry we haven't been as present this summer. Um, We've just been taking a little bit more leisurely schedule in recording and posting, but know that you are very much on our minds in these hot, hot days. Very much. Yes. I've missed the recording, to be honest with you. Oof. Because like we've, it's been so long, we've been sitting with this, I've been sitting with this topic for weeks now, and I'm ready to like talk about it with Becca. Excellent. So yeah, I think that we've kind of covered the intro stuff. I think we should get right into it because this is a topic that I have been obsessed with <laughs> since I was a kid, and that is because of a musical, so you guys listening should not be surprised at all, that my entry point into this particular story was a musical called Ragtime, and that's all I'll say at the moment. But if you're a Broadway fan, you know. If you know, you know. But then being a tour guide, I have loved to find ways to weave elements of the story into various tours. But then as we were prepping this pod, it's just layers of layers of stuff to talk about. So as a content warning right off the top, I think we should just issue this. There's going to be some talk about abuse and sexual assault. So prep yourself. That's coming. If that's not your bag, again, um, take care of yourself first and foremost. And as a sort of larger thought, because we've been, I've been thinking about this, this is the first pod we've recorded in like weeks and we've missed it really a lot. Uh, I've been like sitting with this story for a long time. And there was at least three separate times where I picked up my phone to text Becca and say, we got to postpone this. We can't, this is too heavy. This is a lot. And then I thought to myself, no, history is supposed to make you uncomfortable. That's the point. It's not always sunshine and roses. Sometimes it's dark. And this is one of those stories. And I feel like this is a story that should be told. I haven't seen someone do a sort of reconsideration of this in the wake of the post Me Too era. And so I feel like this is a great story for sort of a reconsideration. And I think, in fact, I know that you and I are the two people to do it and do it right. So I feel like there's, we bring a, there's a sensitivity that needs to be brought to this story. Like a lot of stories, there's not a good guy and a bad guy in this story. There's like two and a half bad guys and a victim. And that's kind of how I see this story. Yeah, and I, I definitely think oh, I, I will be interested as we have this conversation because there's definitely a bad guy that I think doesn't get enough consideration and it's not a guy. <laughs> right, yes. 
I think you're on the same page on that. And I know that you you are on the same wavelength as me. Uh, I will also say, though, if you're a historian listening to this and you write about this era and you write about women and you write about this, I would love, love, love to have a historian tackle this in the post-Me Too mm. era. I would love every... There's not a lot written on this particular topic anyway that's really well-researched or very good, frankly. So I would love that in general. But I would really love to see um, particularly a female historian really dive into this with a more contemporary lens. So if you happen to be that and you're listening, because I know we have some wonderful historian listeners, um, I would buy that book ah, like that, like tomorrow. Hands down. <laughs> yeah, so super would. So we're going to start with Stanford White. We're going to put a picture of Stanford White in the show notes and I encourage everybody to look at it because he has the most amazing mustache. Mustache city, baby. Hey, this is an era of facial hair. Like there are many people in this era, including presidents of the United States who have like some pretty epic facial hair, but Stanford White has this very luxurious mustache. Stanford White's an architect and a really good one actually, whatever else he was, and we'll get to that. He actually has several buildings that still stand more than a hundred years later. He grows up in an artistic family in the sort of post-Civil War era. He becomes an architect. He's very artistically inclined and very well-trained. He forms a, a firm in New York, McKim, Mead, and White. Obviously he is the White. And uh, he has mansions on Fifth Avenue. The Astors and the Vanderbilts employ him. He's got cottages in Newport, and we'll put a link to the uh, cottage in Newport. He has, uh, he designs the original Washington Square Arch. So if you've ever seen that sort of iconic arch in sort of lower Manhattan, that's uh, originally a white design. He's going to design the original Madison Square Garden. He designs the Boston Public Library, which still stands. He designs the universe, uh, Harvard University Club and Symphony Hall in Boston. He's going to help renovate the east and west wing of the White House which seems to me to be an important house. You know, he designs many private homes and uh, the building other than the White House, like he doesn't design the White House. He designs part of the renovation of it. But the building in DC that Becca and I are most familiar with that he designed. And in fact, I believe it is his only extant design in DC. Uh, it's going to be called the Patterson Mansion and it's in DuPont Circle. And for me, this is very emblematic of his style. He is very much a man of his moment. We're in the midst of the Gilded Age. This is the era of conspicuous consumption uh, in the later part of the 19th century. There, a lot of income inequality and a lot of the haves want to show off what they have. And so he is just perfectly positioned and sort of his style is like perfectly dovetails, very ornamental, a lot of display and ostentatious shows of wealth, classical architecture, lots of marble, lots of impressive stone. That's super where Stanford White lives. And the mansion that he has in DuPont that I'm most familiar with of his designs, I've seen several others, but we don't live in New York, just is overflowing with all kinds of ornamentation, all kinds of decoration. This is not, he's not a minimalist. <laughs> yeah. The flip side of this coin too is that, and we talk about this a little bit in the Daniel Burnham piece of the 1893 Columbian Exposition episode, is that there's also this big movement at the end of the 19th century, moving into the 20th century, of really reflecting national ideals and morals 
through architecture and really asserting ourselves as a nation, right? We are really coming into our own at the dawn of the 20th century as a world power, as a leader in innovation and creativity and, and culture. And so these big civic, commercial, civic and commercial projects that Stanford White and his cohorts are a part of this is about who America is, right? We're building bigger, we're building larger, we're building more beautiful. You know, a library isn't just going to be a library. It's going to be the nicest, prettiest, most impressive library. And so white is a big part of this movement. And it really is reflecting sort of where the country is as we head into the early 20th century. Um, and that's one of the things I find so fascinating too, is we, we see this too with buildings like Union Station and, and other sort of buildings in DC that are of the same era as like the Patterson Mansion, that there's what the wealthy are trying to convey, but there's also what we're trying to convey as a nation. And that's very much reflected in whites, particularly his, his work that's more public, like these libraries and museums. He also is, he's very much a socialite, a man about town. He has, and not just in the bad ways, but like he goes to every art opening and has a seat at the opera and he is not, he's wealthy, like architecture makes him a lot of money, but he's not like wealthy like the Vanderbilts. And so he's got this great combination of like peer and servant and he sort of walks that line very well. Uh, he mixes very well in these sort of this company and he's very much seen and known and sort of a celebrity, a star architect, if you will. Um, <laughs> I know. So that's, he's comfortable with this in these elite circles. And I do just want to paint a picture. Imagine this guy who is worldly and sophisticated and artistic. He's a redhead, by the way. He's got red hair and a red mustache. He dresses you know, with style and with flair. And, you know, he's he's gregarious and outgoing. Uh, and he is, he's comfortable in this very elite world, but he also, because he actually works for a living, um, you know, as an architect, he actually pursues, he also works with craftsmen. And, and so he's sort of moving in a lot of circles and he's bringing all of that together. Uh, you can imagine somebody like this today, like an influencer yes. in many ways. Yes. And had that been the end of Stanford White's story, he would be remembered as this very well-loved architectural figure, particularly in the New York area. But that's not where this story ends, because otherwise it'd be a short podcast. So we're going to switch gears. And I wanted to start out this podcast and talk about Evelyn Nesbitt, but because we're interested in women's history, because I feel like in so many retellings of the story, she is a almost an afterthought in her own life story, which is just so sad. Like she's almost erased from this story. But the truth is there's not a lot of life that she leads before bad stuff starts to happen to her. She's born outside of Pittsburgh in 1895, we think. She was never really clear for reasons that I think are going to become more clear. Well, yeah. She will say that her birth certificate burned in a fire at some point, but she thinks 1895. She grows up in, com not comfort, but certainly not destitute circumstances. Her father's Middle class, I'd say solidly sort of middle class. Yes, her father was an attorney. They didn't have luxury, I don't think, but they certainly had, com you know, some comfort. But her father dies when she's about 10 or 11. And her mother does not seem able to cope. She's got a younger brother. And the mother is, they live with friends and are basically homeless and they kind of drift from place to place for a while. Eventually the mother's going to go to Philadelphia to get work as a seamstress. And then after that, she's going to go to New York. At some point in there, as Evelyn 
ages, she's going to get discovered. She's 15 or 16. She's going to get some modeling contracts. That's going to lead to more modeling contracts. And she's really successful as a young model. Charles Dana Gibson is going to do an ad with her sort of profile. She's painted. She's on all sorts of different advertisements. Uh, so she's a Gibson girl. Uh, she's a pin, like one of the first pinups. She's very going to get a lot of attention. And she really, I think, just embodies that the classic beauty of that age. She has this angelic look to her. There's this innocence, but then she's got the pouty lips and the beautiful long dark hair. Um, she just really embodies what is sort of this ideal for what women are supposed to look like at this time. And I think it's important to note too that modeling isn't even the first kind of work she does. Her mother has like kind of no qualms about sending her off to work even at 11, 12. She lies about Evelyn's age to circumvent child labor Mm -hmm. laws. So this is Evelyn at this time that she's being discovered as a model has already been working sometimes 10 or 12 hour days at Wanamaker's, which was a department store, or working as a laundress or running around and collecting rents for her mother. So if you're 14, 15, 16, and you've been working hard labor, and now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to make money modeling, which of those paths would you want to pursue? Right. And her mother says, oh, well, I never let her be photographed in the altogether. So as if that makes it okay that you're, you know, basically sending your daughter out to provide for the family. And she does kind of appear in the altogether. Like there's a couple of nearly nude photos of Evelyn at a very tender age. And she's got this quality about her. We'll, again, we'll put some pictures in the show notes so that you can get a sense of what we're talking about. But she has this gaze towards the camera that's really just eerie. And I, as I was ruminating over this, the modern analog, I think, to this, and I might get myself into trouble. So, Becca, feel free to disavow this. And she's been in the news a lot lately. So, not so I'm going to, this is going to get me into trouble. But here it is. I think. She resembles, at least in the way she's publicly portrayed, I think she resembles a young, early career Britney Spears. Not the looks, because they don't look alike. Yeah. But in the way that they're positioned for the male gaze, I think. I think there's an, a lot of... She's clearly marketed as young and innocent towards men her own age, you know, that sort of coveted you know, teenage to early 20 demographic, but there's also the suggestion to their fathers in the way that Evelyn is posed. You know, there's sort of a more, I don't know, I want to say scandalous undertone to her photos that she's not aware of, I don't think. And I I think that's interesting that, and that's one of the biggest mysteries with Evelyn is how much agency does she have? What does she know? Where is that influence coming? Because there's clearly pressure from her mother to be the financial breadwinner, Mm -hmm. which for a teen girl, there are very few options for being the financial breadwinner for a family. Uh, Now, if you're a pretty teen girl, there's a few more, but there's a lot of pressure from her mother. Then, you know, you've got Evelyn, who's maybe seeing a path forward that is a life that could be a little easier by cashing in on this, this quality that she has by taking advantage of these opportunities. 
you know, so there is sort of this push and pull of, does she like it? Does she enjoy it? Is this a better option? How much pressure is she getting from her mother? How much consent or control is there? Really not much, truthfully, but there is a lot of mystery because we don't have a lot of first person account from Evelyn. A lot of what she says about this period is much, much later and after the fact. And then just I'll say one other thing about Evelyn and kind of what she's doing at this time. She starts as an artist model, but then she really finds that photography is more appealing for her because when you are posing for a painter, you have to sit for hours and hours and hours. When you're doing photography, you can do more work in less time and the pay is better. And the pay at this time was pretty good. She could make $300, $400 a day, which was certainly better than working as a laundress, working in a department store. Um, This was definitely more financially lucrative, but that is offset to you by the fact that the work is in New York City which is an expensive place to live, even at the turn of the century. So just like today, it's expensive. So I find her also very um, analogous to many of the young women who become actresses but start in kind of the modeling world. Um, And you can sort of look at generationally all sorts of different women, even someone like a Marilyn Monroe. Um, But, you know, she goes from painting painters to photography and then eventually goes, ah, maybe the stage is going to be the better place for me. And that's where she kind of ends up. She gets basically like talent scouted and is going to eventually find herself as a Floradora girl, which is basically a chorus girl for a, a show that's on Broadway at the time called Floradora. And these are all going to be young girls. And her mother initially kind of objects to this, but she, their objections are softened by the knowledge that, you know, there are many of these girls go on to marry rich guys. I have just so many objections to her mother. I'm sorry. I was going to save it, but I just. Yeah. This is where we start to kind of go, you know, there's no doubt to me that the men in this story are villainous, but her mother and her inability to sort of give her good guidance, her inability to really look out for Evelyn um, is, is a very frustrating element to this story. And uh, you can't blame Evelyn in many ways. I can't for wanting to take these opportunities. And you can imagine how alluring and exciting this is for a 15, 16 year old girl. You know, it's showbiz. It's high society. It's living large. It's beautiful dresses and handsome men. And it's easy to see how she gets swept up in it. It's very, very frustrating to see that her mother just consistently pimps her out for lack of a better word. And whether that is go work 12 hours and make money to put food on the table or go do this morally questionable photo shoot or go parade around on stage so you might marry a millionaire, every one of these things her mother pushes her to do is just bad parenting. It is just, oh, it's so, it hurts my soul. And I want to leave space for the fact that this is a woman in a man's world and that this is an unsophisticated woman in a rich man's world. And I think there's grief mixed in there, but she just seems unable to cope and basically pimps her daughter out. That is exactly the word I was going to use. You know, she basically relies on her daughter, has good looks, and that's going to be the family's ticket. And in she becomes a Floridora girl, and in this sort of Broadway milieu, she runs into a she's introduced to a maid to Stanford White, and Stanford White at this time is forty six. He is at the top of his game, 
And he is got a wife and kids, but he leads an independent social life. And so that's kind of something that's sort of well-known as well. And he's struck by Evelyn and he's going to, through intermediaries, arrange to meet her. And at first they meet in the company of a bunch of other people. And then the groups get smaller. And then he invites her back to his apartment and not the apartment he lives in with his wife, but a sort of shadowy secret apartment. And then he invites her alone. And as this is happening, he's sort of ramping up. He's helping her and her mother find a new apartment. He's sponsoring her brother for school. He's helping to pay expenses. And it just is so obviously grooming behavior, like from the remove of a hundred years. Like this is so obviously he's grooming her. And this is, I just have to say, it's so practiced. There is no way, and this is not a spoiler, there's no way that this is the first time he's done this. It isn't Evelyn who's all of a sudden sent him a Twitter. Um, This is clearly practiced behavior that he has honed. And there's... There's no way, and I think there are some historians who have painted this as sort of, well, she, it was just, Evelyn was so beautiful that he really gets caught up in this. And this is, this is a pattern of behavior that he has perfected by the time he gets to Evelyn. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the early meetings in a group of different girls is to see which girl is the most Mm -hmm. sort of vulnerable to his advances. Yeah, I absolutely see this completely as grooming behavior. I'll just quote Mark Twain here for a moment who knew Stanford White and would later sort of describe White as eagerly and diligently and ravenously and remorselessly hunting young girls to their destruction. That's how Mark Twain describes it. And we see it absolutely embodied in how he pursues Evelyn. And he is going to, and this is the part that just kills me. He is going to pay for her mother to go on a vacation. And it just, I'm not even a mom and my alarm bell, my mom alarm bells are like going off like crazy town. Like you have an older sophisticated man who's probably older than the mother paying for the mother to go out of town so that the daughter stays in town unchaperoned. I just, Stanford White is very much the villain in this story, 100%. He's going to do terrible things, FYI. But the mother just, how do you do that? How do you just not see what's happening? And and in some ways, right, this is an unfortunate illustration of, in many circumstances, how limited women's options were in this era. Because it it plays out on a very particular scale because he's Stanford White and he has money to sort of lavish on them. He's going to be able to sort of lure her with this. But honestly, many of the marriages or the marriage prospects or the courting prospects for women in other classes were not much less predatory. They just weren't as extravagant. Right, right. Um, This is a sadly, I think, illustrative of an era. So when her mother goes out of town... White invites Evelyn Nesbitt over for dinner and champagne at his apartment. And it's going to be capped with a tour of his mirror room, which is basically this big room with a mirror and it's furnished only with a sofa. And they're going to drink more champagne. And she changes into a kimono at his his request. And this is all going to be something that she's going to recall later. There's no contemporaneous accounts of this. And she remembered the champagne tasted funny, and then she blacks out. 
And the next thing she knows, she's naked in bed with Stanford White lying naked next to her. And there is no doubt in anyone's mind what has just happened. And if you want to pause this so you can go scream into the void, I don't blame you. It's so, it's so just, oh, it's so terrible. I just have so many sadnesses for this poor young woman who is being victimized by basically everyone in her life. And despite all of this date, this is an apparent date rape. They didn't have this term then, but that's what we would call it. She continues to see him. He becomes her sort of regular companion for some time. And I feel like he's the kind of guy that runs hot, hot, hot with a woman for a while or a girl in this case, and then phases them out. And he always has a couple in rotation. And that's what she's going to kind of discover as this affair wanes. He had truly, I mean, Stanford had, which will become evidence later on in, in this, he has a true little black book, you know, the cliche of he keeps a book with these young women's information. And it absolutely is. It is, this is a pattern of behavior. He runs hot, hot, hot. For him, a lot of the game is the seduction. That's sort of the obsession. He likes the buildup. He likes really taking these fragile, delicate young girls who are in precarious life situations. He likes to come in. He likes to save them. And then when he sort of gets what he wants, he can then sort of be like, okay, I'm still here. And if you need me and if I need you, I might call you. But otherwise, I'm now ready to do this all over again. So, I mean, it's classic just predator behavior. And he's sort of done with her. I mean, he's kind of done. I think she ages out too. Like, I think he's got an age in mind. And that's going to become true later on that he prefers girls at like the 16, 17, 18 age point. And once she gets a little beyond that, you know, in his mind, he gives her the kiss off and wishes her well. And she goes off to her merry way. I think that that's what he sees is happening here. And Evelyn is going to date other guys. She actually has a romance with John Barrymore, who's Drew Barrymore's grandfather. And who at this time is actually close to her age, as opposed yeah. to many of the men coming to the, the Floridora. They're, these men are 20, 30, 40 years. He's actually a young actor. And so they're, contempor- they're almost kind of a nice match because they're close to the same age. He seems to be very smitten with her. She seems to be very smitten with him. But you will never guess who objects to their relationship. Huh. Who? Yeah, so apparently, despite the fact that he is on a track to be successful, despite the fact that he's the right age and the right personality for Evelyn, Evelyn's mother thinks he's unsuitable because he's not at this point, right? He's not a millionaire like men like Stanford White. Um, He's not the right person. And so Evelyn's mother is going to actually call in Stanford White to sort of help break this up. And basically, White is going to help get Nesbitt enrolled at a boarding school that was run by Cecil B. DeMille's mother, of all people. So, I mean, Barrymore wanted to marry Evelyn Nesbitt at one point, And Evelyn's mother just sort of says, no, this is, despite the fact that this is probably a lot healthier than any of the other relationships you've been in, this isn't it. And so White will intervene. Oh my gosh. So this is so terrible. And then Evelyn will find herself in a relationship that sadly is more to her mother's liking, but also not good for Evelyn. Not good for Evelyn. So 
Um, she's involved with other men too. Barrymore's not the only one. White is not the only one. She's got a couple of different, she's got a polo player and a magazine publisher. White is still like her a presence in her life and kind of a benefactor, but he's, I feel like as time goes by, a little less a romantic companion and more like kind of a cherished dad figure, which is just so gross. She's going to become involved with a man named Harry Thaw. And Harry Thaw is abuser number two. And Thaw really is just like, we, we will again put all this stuff in the show notes, but you can already just get a vibe. Yes. He was born into this railroad family, right? So he comes from money and he comes from the right social classes. Exactly the kind of person Evelyn Nesbitt's mother hoped she would meet performing in these shows, right? A well-to-do society family with money. But Thaw has never quite been right. Like just never right from the beginning. Uh, He's had just all all sorts of little red flags, even as a child, that would probably speak to some mental health concerns today. And when he goes off to Harvard, he's really kind of just like a wild man. I mean, he is an alcoholic. Uh, He's constantly getting into fights. He's also just ridiculous with money, lighting his cigars with $100 bills, spending all this time sort of chasing down women. He once chased a cab driver with a shotgun because he thought he'd been cheated out of 10 cents for change. So this is somebody with a short temper. This is somebody with a short fuse. And Evelyn is going to get caught into his web. Very much. And he is certainly closer to Evelyn's age than Stanford White. He's probably about 10, 15 years older than she is. Uh, He's very wealthy, very much, there's some mental illness. And it seems to me that he's the kind of guy that if he didn't have any money, like no one would tolerate him. Like he's just eccentric and strange. He's hard to be around. He's very, there's something very off-putting about him. And he has a pre-existing relationship with Stanford White that I should at least mention. He blames White for having blackballed him from basically New York society, from several club entrances and from becoming sort of as big a player in New York society as White is. He has this animosity towards Stanford White that predates Evelyn. And Evelyn has, he's, she's involved with Harry Thaw, but she's also involved with other people. He arranges to meet her and he lies about who he is. And he's like very obsessed with her. Like he will show up and see her perform night after night after night after night. Obsessive behavior, not just a fanboy, like obsessive. No, obsessive. And at some point, Evelyn's going to go undergo surgery. And this is very sort of shadowy, murky surgery. She, the official diagnosis is an appendectomy, but there were whispers then that it was not, that wasn't quite the region of her stomach that was being operated on. It was thought that she had been pregnant and had had an abortion. Possibly it was Barrymore's baby. It is not clear. Even Evelyn's own grandson is going to later say he thinks she went away to have an abortion. At any rate, both Barrymore and Evelyn will deny under oath that that's what this was later. But Thaw's going to become very solicitous, ensures that she receives the best medical care. He thinks that they should go on a European trip to help her convalesce. And they're going to bring her mother, which is like bringing the fox into the hen house. They go to Europe and 
they're moving fast around Europe. They're doing the like basically this sort of European tour that you do when you don't have any money and you want to see as much as possible, except that he's got a ton of money. And tensions are mounting between Evelyn and her mother, which I, you know, can't imagine why. Just kidding. Her mother's really annoys me. Um, the mother's going to go home. And so now Evelyn. And can I just say pattern of behavior, yes. right? Separating her from her mother once again. Mm. Not that I think her mother's the best influence, but getting Evelyn alone. So now Thaw's in Europe with Evelyn alone after this hectic, you know, they're on this hectic travel pace after she's had this surgery. So it's just really weakening Evelyn's resolve. And Harry Thaw's going to propose to her. And she's constantly. thinking about it. Hmm? I said constantly. He constantly. proposes constantly on this trip. And she, like, he wants to marry her and he keeps pressing her on this. And she is aware that he has this obsession with female chastity, which, like, let's not get into the sexism on that one. But she decides she can't accept his marriage proposal without telling him about her former boyfriends, including Stanford White. And so Harry Thaw does not react well to this because he's unbalanced and he already has a vendetta against White. And my favorite little detail about this is at some point after she tells him about her affair with Stanford White, they go to Joan of Arc's home village. We did a whole pod about Joan of Arc. And in the visitor's book, Harry Thaw will write a note that she wouldn't have been a virgin, a, a virgin if Stanford White had been around. Like, <laughs> this is the level of crazy town. This is, I just, I, so, I feel so bad for her. So anyway, he's going to take her to a castle where there are three servants and they stay in the other wing and he basically assaults her for like two weeks. That's basically what happens. And then he's very apologetic and again, very typical assailant behavior, does a terrible thing and is very apologetic. We'll never do it again. And at this point, Evelyn Nesbitt's going to realize that she's got no future with Stanford White because he's married and that she is, in fact, compromising her own reputation and her own marriage prospects by continuing to be associated with him. And so she's going to marry Harry Thaw, which she thinks is the only option she's got open to her, I think. And I think so. They get married in 1905. And this is after Thaw has spent four years obsessively pursuing her. I, it's really troubling what comes out later on in terms of how much he had been following her, stalking her, reading about her, um, showing up to these shows, insinuating himself into every part of her life, that you really get the feeling that after four years, she is just done defending herself. You know, she's done trying to stop it. It feels inevitable. It is like a train rushing to her. And I think she absolutely feels that Stanford White, to an extent, has ruined her, that he has jeopardized many of her marriage prospects. She's feeling exhausted by this pace of having to perform, having to do advertisements. All the things she's been doing to bring money into her family is exhausting. She has been working her entire teenage life. And I think that after four years of this man just not giving up, she's just sort of done. And she's like, yeah, at least if I marry you, there's money, there's security. And, you know, it just is what it is. And it's it's so sad to see a young woman have to make that choice. 
But I, I really, truly believe he is just so adamant and so intense that she kind of knows. I don't think she could have married anyone else. Thaw would have lost his mind. I think she just feels that this is the only option she has. And at least it comes with money. And so there we go. (laughs) And she can continue to lead a New York life, she feels. And maybe marriage will help settle him down. And she starts to sort of believe Harry Thaw's line about white, that white is blackballing him, that, you know, maybe marriage will help to settle him and that, you know, he will, he, he'll settle down. Things will be okay. They'll lead a New York lifestyle. They'll be very much around. It'll be okay. And she's at most 21 years old when this is happening. Like she's still extremely young. Though they get married, spoiler alert, things do not improve. He has this habit, and this will come out later. So all the while this is going on, he will obsessively make her recount her relationship with White over and over and over again. Like wake her up in the middle of the night, make her tell him the story uh, about uh, her deflowering, as Thaw will put it. So making her relive this trauma over and over again. Yes. And instead of staying in New York, they're going to move to his family's home outside of Pittsburgh. And so she's stuck in Pittsburgh with her disapproving mother-in-law. Lots of money, but this is a very strict social structure. She doesn't really know anybody and is just misery for, sounds like terrible misery. Uh, She had imagined entertaining and traveling, but now she discovers that Thaw has a pious side, that he's very much his mother's son and he's kind of under his mother's thumb. And they're just, she's miserable in Pittsburgh. She convinces him about a year or so after their marriage that they're going to go on a, they want to go to a, a trip to Europe. So they're going to visit on their way. They catch this, the ocean liner over to Europe. They're going to stay in New York for a couple of days. While they're there, they're staying in a hotel. They go out to a nice dinner. Harry Thaw is acting, if possible, even more strange than usual. <laughs> Which he was, a, I mean, we haven't really gotten into what a truly sociopathic odd man he was but he's acting weird even yes. for him this night. it's the middle of june which is not cool in new york city he refuses to take off his overcoat over his tuxedo like he wears this to dinner he wears this out and he's jittery and he wants very much to go to a show that is being performed uh, on top of madison square garden called mamzelle champagne I know sounds very exotic and they stop at this place for dinner and Evelyn has some drinks and she doesn't really want to go to the show but Harry Thaw is going to insist and so they go and this is a musical it's on the roof of the original Madison Square Garden and White appears Stanford White shows up and Evelyn kind of realizes something really bad is not this is not good this is not accidental and as Evelyn will later talk about Harry thought at some point towards the close of the show disappears and she doesn't know where he goes and where it turns out he goes is to wherever Stanford White is sitting. He pulls out a gun and shoots him. He fires three shots, killing White instantly, yelling about how White ruined his wife and that he had it coming and that he took advantage of her and abandoned her, all of which is true. I mean, not the ruined part, but the taking advantage part. 
You have to kind of imagine this scene, though, because, like, it's the rooftop of the old original Madison Square Garden. The show is in its big finale, so there's a bunch of people singing and dancing a song called I Could Love a Million Girls, which actually the perfection of the title of that song for Stanford White is like, you can't make it up. I Could Love a Million Girls. And, you know, Harry Thaw, a known millionaire, people recognize him, pull out this gun. He's maybe two feet from White. So when he fires three shots, two which hit White in the face and one which hits him in the shoulder, I mean, White's face is blown off. He becomes almost instantly unrecognizable. And then this is my favorite part of this is the way the crowd initially reacts. People think it's like a practical joke. People think it's a party trick. This was actually kind of in vogue in this era for men to stage these kind of elaborate public pranks. Uh, This was the sort of thing men in these social clubs did. So people are sort of thinking like, oh, how fun. Or, oh, you know, this is just the boys being boys. And then they realize that one of the most famous architects in the city, the man who designed the building they're all in or on the roof of at this time, is dead. And it just becomes chaos. You can imagine everybody starts to scatter and Evelyn gets kind of lost, I think, deliberately in the chaos. She basically manages to extricate herself. She gets she doesn't want to go back to their hotel suite, so she bunks in with a girlfriend. But Harry Thaw is instantly arrested. He's going to go to a prison for this. The news coverage of this is insanity. The next morning, it is on the headlines of every newspaper in town. This is a huge public celebrity murder and up until this moment the real the story about evelyn and stanford white is only known to evelyn stanford white and harry thaw and all of a sudden as this sort of progresses all of these details are going to come out and not just about evelyn people you know as soon as you die right people are willing to tell the truth about you Men who knew Stanford White, people who knew him, women in these, you know, women, young girls, really, in these chorus lines, any journalist is willing to pay for their story. And so the stories come out and they're just one after another after another. Stanford White had actually belonged to sort of this underground sex club that was part of a men's social club, a legitimate social club he was in. So stories of this underground sort of sex group made up of young male millionaires in New York City come out. So I mean, it is almost instantaneous where the first day or two it's famed architect is killed. And then almost immediately it is all about Stanford White and his proclivities, and the young women. And it's so sensationalized. I mean, it is just months of coverage of White and what he did, not just to Evelyn, but to many, many, many women. And it's, Evelyn doesn't even receive, like, she receives some sympathy, but not really as much as you'd expect. Like, they they talk about how she sold herself to one millionaire and then and married another. Well, and she was a chorus girl, and all, and all of a sudden, it's the, the life choices she made are now, well, when you're a fashion model, when you're a chorus girl, these are the kinds of things that happen. So there's very much this, all of a sudden, it's, well, she... She chose that life, right? So what does one expect? Oh, and you can't see me, friends, but I am rolling my eyes. This is just, I just, this bothers me so much. So Harry Thaw's going to go on trial for murder. And his mother is adamant that he not be tainted with a clinical insanity diagnosis or charge. So they're going to try temporary insanity. And they go through two trials. The first trial ends in a mistrial. So Evelyn has to relive all of this. So this is a press gauntlet. There's reporters 
everywhere, sketch artists, the public, photographers, everywhere, through one trial, which is bad enough, and she has to testify, again, telling this, this very private story publicly, again, and then it ends in a mistrial, and so they have to do it again. And guess, Bega, you'll never guess, who remains absent through all of this? Who just basically flies the coop and is nowhere to be found? I'm going to assume it's Evelyn's mother. It is Evelyn's mother. Yeah, Evelyn's mother is like, well. Because again, Evelyn is 20, 21, 22 at most at this point. She's still very young. <laughs> and her mom's just gone. And I have to say, too, just to, to really illustrate the insane, like, sexism and class divide of this time. Thaw is jailed for first-degree murder. I mean, he's shot a man in cold blood. And yet, does he have to wear prisoner's garb? He does not. He can wear his custom-tailored suits. Um, he's allowed to have wine and champagne brought to him. He actually gets to have reporters come and talk to him. He's allowed to bring in his own food. Uh, he absolutely gets this special treatment which leads him to really think that he's going to be called a hero, that he has rid the world of this predator, which, I mean, he's not wrong. Sanford White is a predator. But Thaw sees himself as like the man who saved not just his wife, but all of these young women and these young girls, and he saved the city. So he's kind of like waiting in this jail cell in his suits, eating his fancy food, drinking his champagne, basically like, cool, I'm going to get a key to the city or something. Like, I, I'm expecting to be lauded it's amazing to me um he's gonna be eventually judged insane and committed to involuntary commitment for life at the matawan state hospital for the criminally insane in beacon new york and that's kind of how this goes now he is <laughs> going to be put in jail in 1908 that's when all of this basically resolves itself but he only remains in jail until 1915 he's judged sane and let out so life turns out to be significantly less than his whole life. Evelyn remains, they kind of remain, she doesn't really devoted to him. That's the wrong characterization. Uh, but she supports him. She remains kind of by his side up until she gets pregnant. And she is going to insist for the rest of her life that this happened in a conjugal visit because he's getting all these special privileges. Of course, he would be allowed special time with his wife. And honestly, I don't see any reason to doubt her about this. He will not acknowledge the child. But once she tells him that she's pregnant, Harry Thaw basically loses his mind, insists that the child is not his, and kind of kicks Evelyn out. She goes to Europe to give birth to their child, their son. They get divorced. She's going to go. She now has a, a child to support. And again, at this point, she's in her mid-20s. So she decides she's going to continue to support herself in the only way that she thinks of that she has available. Uh, she's going to be, uh, become an actress, vaudeville, early actress. She is going to make a bunch of movies. She marries the second time. It does not go very well. Uh, it ends rel relatively quickly. And she lives in um, California for quite a while. She's going to completely unsurprisingly to me, run a speakeasy. She just struggles with alcoholism and a morphine addiction later in life. She's going to work in a burlesque into her fifties. She's working at a, as a, a burlesque and her ex-husband, Harry Thaw keeps her under surveillance for more than a decade after their divorce. 
and basically doesn't acknowledge his child, does not financially provide for either one of them. Eventually, when Harry Thaw dies, he gives her like $10,000 out of his million dollar estate. Yep. So after everything he put her through, and it, we have to be clear too, I mean, Thaw abuses her on that trip to Europe. I mean, he is uh, obsessive. He stalks her. I mean, puts her through so much trauma and everything with during the trial, constantly dragging her her reputation through the mud after all of this she gets ten thousand yep. dollars when he dies yep it's just so upsetting it, it makes me insane i just yeah and she's gonna live into her 80s actually she teaches for a while after world war ii she's a technical advisor on a movie in the 1950s about her the girl in the red velvet swing and she's going to live quietly in new jersey but return to california and she dies in a nursing home in 1967 at the age of 82 and it just seems like to me such a a wasted life you know there's so much there that is she just gets abused basically constantly as a teenager and then suffers the effects of that forever like that never she never really recovers from the joint abuse of her mother Stanford White and then Harry Thaw like it just taints everything that happens afterward it is not at all a surprise to me that she struggles with alcoholism and drug addiction it just is the she's very the victim of these three people in a very very real way Absolutely. I mean, I, I just think, uh, like we said, there's sort of two and a half villains. I, I really think it's interesting. This is often painted as some t occasionally as poor Harry Thaw. And I mean, he's absolutely as much of a predator as Stanford White is. But I, I, I just constantly come back around to Evelyn's mother. And it's easy to see the parallels in more contemporary society. I mean, we see this with these stage mothers. We see it with these mothers that push their children into sort of child stardom or the pageant circuit or any of these sort of things. And Evelyn's mother, Florence, just never seems to truly care about Evelyn's well-being. And so it's no wonder that when Evelyn reaches true adulthood, she struggles. So she's been through so much trauma. She's had no real guidance. And um, at the end of all of this, I mean, all of this that her mother sort of couches in, do this, you'll be set for life, right? You're going to do this. You're going to marry rich. You're going to have money. But Evelyn never has never really has enough money to not have to struggle or enough money to not have to worry. So her mother sells her, I feel like, a bill of goods too of, well, yeah, you're doing this right now, but you're going to marry a millionaire and it's all going to be fine. Or you're going to do this and then you're going to be wealthy and you'll be set for life. And she never, never is. And of course, it's no wonder to me that it's so difficult for her as she reaches middle age and on. And her mother never is never there. Like when you're supposed to, when you need your parent to like help guide you, like she's a teenager when Stanford White pays attention to her. And of course she's like taken in by this like wealthy, sophisticated guy who's paying her a lot of attention. By the time this sort of affair with White winds down, she's caught in Harry Thaw's clutches and she's just not she doesn't have a lot of other options. Her mother has told her you need to marry a rich millionaire. Her mother has scuttled her affair with John Barrymore, who she seems to have actually really cared about. And I can imagine how defeated she must have felt at 19, 20, 21 years old. Like 
having been abused by one man and now in the clutches of another abuser and her mother provides no guidance. And then when she needs her with the, with this ongoing trial that takes over a year, her mother's nowhere to be found. I don't know. It just, the mother is bad and Harry Thaw is bad and Stanford White is all bad. It's just, it's so, I feel so bad for this poor girl who's been so abused. And I, I feel like what's interesting about this story for me is that there is some pop culture kind of acknowledgement out there. There is a movie that you mentioned that she consulted on, The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. It is deeply, deeply fictionalized. And because it's done in 1955, it really just scratches the surface of what she really experiences. Like, I'd be fascinated to see a film done today that could really look at this with, again, that more contemporary lens. But if you haven't seen it, it has Joan Collins a young Joan Collins, youngish Joan Collins plays Evelyn Nesbitt. Sort of fascinating. It's not bad, but it's it's very much a fictionalized sort of whitewashed version of this. The more, I think, maybe better known representation of Evelyn's story comes in the book Ragtime, the novel by E.L. Doctorow, which is turned into a film, which Evelyn is, is portrayed in uh, by Elizabeth McGovern, and then a very popular Broadway musical that came out in 1996, which was, I was in middle school. I was obsessed with uh, the Ragtime original Broadway cast album. It's got beautiful music, and Evelyn has a song, The Girl on the Red Velvet Swing, or The Girl on the Swing, and uh, it just, that's how I, that's how I learned about the story. And then every sort of like, as I got older and as I sort of got more connected to it, the more layers that sort of come out, it just, it's really, I think, deserving of a more critical look. It's deserving of a better like historical book, but I would also be fascinated to see this explored in art from a female perspective to see what a female filmmaker might do with a story like this. Yes, I agree. I think that would be really interesting to see uh, how that plays out. Um, and really, it's amazing to me, we talk about this sometimes too, how somebody in their lifetime is revered. And then after the fact, you know, we sort of reevaluate, reevaluate. With Stanford White, it's kind of instantaneous. When he's alive, people know mm. that he's a predator. You know, they know that he sort of pursues these young women. It's sort of like everyone just lets it go because he's not the only one by any means. But as soon as he dies, it's incredible how quickly it tarnishes his reputation. It's kind of, we talk a lot, or we don't talk, but people talk about cancel culture. You know, there is sort of this immediate moment where people are like, oh yeah, that guy, Sanford Whitey was terrible. I think, and I feel like, like looking at the, the rapidity with which Stanford White is sort of rejected by his peers after death, I feel there's a little of like, cover your butt. Because I feel yeah, oh, like, and it's definitely like, oh, that guy, that guy was bad. Don't look into what I've been doing because he's really bad. Right. There's a lot of like, yeah, he's really terrible. And I've already always known that, obviously, to cover up like he's thrown under the bus to cover up crimes uh, of an equal nature by many of his peers. Uh, and so I feel that there's very much like he's Absolutely. not that he doesn't deserve it, but there's very much like he's the sacrificial lamb so that people don't look too deeply into what other people are into. So yeah, Stanford White is really kind of fascinating. And it also sort of comes out that like, he's got this really pristine reputation. And it's one thing like people's marriages don't work out. Like it is well known that Stanford White and his wife live, lead separate lives and that he kind of has his own thing on the side. That doesn't appear to bother anybody. But what his thing on the side is that it's abusing young girls. That seems to be more of an open secret than I think 
anyone should be comfortable with. People sort of like, yeah, I knew he was into some weird stuff. And so it's just this culture of like covering up for that, the way that they kind of make it Evelyn's fault in a big way. Like, oh, well, obviously, you know, she's a chorus girl. So what are you going to do? I just, it's very, it's all icky. Well, and there's definitely a sense of white wasn't discreet enough, right? There are other men doing these things. It's all about discretion. Well, clearly white wasn't discreet enough. So that's the problem. The problem is not what you're doing. It's that people are finding out about it and you're being messy. You made it messy. So this is, this is, I just, it's a fascinating moment in history. It's a fascinating look at a lot of things, including sort of celebrity and, and wealth and and certainly gender roles and gender expectations and and sexuality. So I'm I'm really appreciative that you wanted to do this topic. I do tell this story um, on my Dark Side of DuPont Circle tour, but it's nice to have a chance to really dig in on it a little bit more and really explore the shades of gray within it. I tell the barest version of this because I feel like this is one of those stories that you, if you go too deeply into it, it takes a lot of time, like in order to really talk about it and do it well. So I basically like give the barest version of this on my dark side tour. Also, because there's other really interesting things to talk about on that tour as well. But, um, <laughs> and also Stanford White does not have a particularly strong DC connection. So that's the other reason, but there's a lot other than the one mansion that we do have here patterson mansion uh he does it three years before he's murdered so it's one of the last um works that he completes before he's murdered so um it is sort of right at the end it's sort of the pinnacle of his you know style and career the patterson mansion but it's also quite near the end of his life right so we want to thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting the podcast. We just are so appreciative of you. Uh, as always, if you have questions, feedback, want to pitch the pod, find us on social media. You can find us at Twitter at Tour Guide Tell, and we're at Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. You can also pitch the pod or just send us your thoughts, your feedbacks, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Truly, every email you send, like we all share it around with each other and we love them. And they really do make us happy so thank you so much yes for for reaching out to us thank you very much thank you to our patreon supporters who are are the wind beneath our wings and have been so supportive of us um we are so very grateful and uh, we are like we have been mentioning a little bit of a reduced summer schedule we're going to have a couple episodes uh, between now and mid-August when we're going to take a little hiatus and come back after Labor Day with like our regularly scheduled programming um and we're going to kind of consider this sort of the end of season one. Yes. So we'll have a couple more stories for you guys. We'll take a little August recess. And then when we come back in September, we're going to consider it season two. Yeah. So I'm really proud because we have done almost 100 episodes in our first season. So exciting. But we'll hit our 100th near the beginning of season yes. two. And we're trying to cook up something really fun for you. Yes. Yeah, so suggestions welcome. Thank you guys very much. Have a great day. Bye, guys. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.